Good morning, happy Sabbath. The leaves are starting to change tones as we move from hot winter to hot fall here in Southern California. It is a beautiful, beautiful Sabbath, a little warm for my taste, but, al but alas, the calendar says that we are in October, which means two things. It means school is a, a fill of activity and a hub of just movement and excitement. And it also means that we're starting a new quarter. Uh, we deal with mission for the next 13 Sabbaths. We deal with how we are as Adventists to convey a message that is poignant and profound. And we do so as a team asking for God's presence to be with us. So let me invite you before we get started to pray. And as we pray, we're going to invite my co-host, Joey O, to join us. And we're going to have a conversation on mission and specifically, what is God's mission to us? So pray with us. God, thank you for giving us a mission. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for equipping us. Thank you for your kindness and your care. We just pray that you continue to move in and through us. For we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Happy October Sabbath. How are you today on this Fall, fall, warm, warm Sabbath. Yeah, I thought we were done with all the hot weather. We are not. But Loma Linda always has a few of these up no. her sleeve before, before we hit yeah. winter. Yeah. The remnants of the summer. Yeah, yeah. But it is nice. It is nice that the evenings are getting cooler. Mm -hmm. um, with the kids in school, it really does feel like we're in the rhythm of fall now. Yeah. And summer is is behind us. It's behind us. And yeah. it's it's really interesting if you live in Southern California, maybe some other places of the country, you, you'll recognize this. It's really hard to get dressed because it's cold in the morning and then it gets really hot in the yeah. middle of the day and then it gets cold at night again. So you do have to be very, very judicious with how you layer up, uh, particularly as you're going out to, to drop the kiddos off at school. Um, I looked at uh, the thermometer Friday, uh, so yesterday, and it was 58 degrees when we took the kids out mm. to school and then it was close to 90 by the time we picked <laughs> them up. So that's just a little 30 degree shift in the air uh, in a couple hours. So that's been challenging. Yeah, welcome to Loma Linda, yeah. right? Yeah. Layers, layers are key. Layers are key when you live layers here. Layers are key. Layers are part of the mission of Loma Linda. Mm -hmm. um, so we start a new quarter. Uh, Joey, we move. And the uh, General Conference Adult Sabbath School Department does this really well. We move from something usually theological to something more practical, to something more evangelistic uh, and oriented towards our duty and our call as members of God's church. Uh, and by that, we mean all Christian churches. Uh, and so we start this, this lesson moving out of the beautiful theology of Ephesians to, to jump into something more practical. Yeah, God with us. And what an appropriate theme, this idea that God is... Um, God has sent us into mission um, and the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. What a great theme to talk about as the school year begins, mm -hmm. as we enter into the fall. And then we end this quarter with um, with a celebration of how God's mission on here on earth began mm -hmm. uh, with the birth of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's a very, inappropriate, uh, very appropriate theme for this season. Yeah, it is apropos. It's apropos that uh, I think we at least go back to this um, 
on a semi-regular basis because you need to continue driving this point of mission. You need to be clear about what your goals are, what your calling is, what your purpose is in order to obviously fulfill that purpose. And so um, I find it interesting that we start this lesson by going back uh, to celebrate and to recognize the Adventist God. Mm. And obviously, the temptation then is to pat myself on the back because I'm talking about the God of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which obviously I am not. Uh, the Adventist God is, is the God who comes, the God that comes. Uh, the word Adventist itself, and I think this is part of the brilliance of our pioneers, the word Adventist itself comes from this Latin word Adventus, which simply means to come. And so... Adventism is a movement that seeks to respond in meaningful ways to the coming of God. And through our time together, we will make at least the argument that there are three primary modes of God's coming. God's coming in creation, God's coming in incarnation, and then finally God's coming at the parousia or um, as Revelation puts it uh, at the end time. So those are three modalities of, of God's coming that I think the lesson picks up on uh, as it drives us back both to Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Yeah, and God comes towards us because humans, we have stepped away, mm. right? We have stepped away and there's this desire God, from God to be mm -hmm. with us. So mm -hmm. he makes effort after effort mm -hmm. throughout scripture to be with his people yeah. again. Yeah, and that is kind of God's mode of being, right? Mm -hmm. um, the fact is that God always initiates the relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the, the mistakes that often gets made, that this idea of incarnation or the coming of God is linked solely to the issue of sin. Yeah. It is definitely and definitely it takes on new meaning after Genesis 3. But at the beginning, uh, the one who always initiates the move sure. forward, as you're mentioning, is God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let us make human beings in our image. Uh, so it is always God who desires to create uh, beings, creatures in God's image. And by this, we mean, as we've said before, uh, beings with the capacity to freely relate and to freely connect in meaningful ways to that which is wholly other, uh, as Paul Tillich would say, to God, to this, to this God that is both imminent and transcendent. Those are a lot of big words I have. But. <laughs> yeah, I, I love how you make that connection between um, God's creative impulse and his desire mm -hmm. to come to be with us, right? That that was driven because he wanted mm -hmm. to be with humanity. That's what inspired mm -hmm. him to create. And not even that, not just that, after God creates humanity, he comes regularly mm -hmm. to walk with them mm -hmm. in the garden and to spend time with them. It's mm -hmm. not like he just created them and then he moves mm -hmm. on, right? He wants to have a relationship, mm -hmm. which is, when you think about it, is kind of incredible, mm -hmm. right? That. God is the creator of the universe with I don't know how many beings there are in the universe. And yet he wants to have this intimate mm -hmm. personal relationship with all of his creations. Mm -hmm. That is sort of mind blowing yeah. for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is what gives uh, credence to this idea of Sabbath simply being being something more than the right day or the seal of, of the remnant, although there are some I think highly eschatological meanings to the idea of Sabbath. The reality is Sabbath is a altar 
to God's ultimate desire to be known and to know us. And so this is why the week, the creative week, concludes on Sabbath for God, but it commences for human beings because God wants to be intentional about creating the space to come, uh, to be Adventist in the sense that it is God revealing God's self to Adam and Eve. And as you said, that doesn't end in Sabbath, which I think is, is so important to, that you mention. It continues. It continues to the point that by the time we get to Genesis 3, you can assume or you can read between the lines in the text and assume that it was God's practice to walk in the garden in the cool of day mm -hmm. because Adam and Eve recognize the sound of God rustling yeah. in the garden. So it seems like God's desire to be known uh, emanated from God's own being. And so it's not that God wanted to be known and or because he was lonely or because God was frustrated or because God simply wanted something to worship him. It was in God's nature mm. uh, to be known and to come. Yeah. Adventism then is part of God's nature. Yeah, because they recognize God's voice and they recognize mm -hmm. God's presence. It, it leads us to believe that this was a very familiar mm -hmm. act and not just God checking up on them because they had sinned, right? right? So this is, this is something that God did regularly. And that's that's a beautiful image. Yeah, so you have this, this almost heart-wrenching text, right, that that the lesson pushes us to in Genesis chapter three, verse eight. Mm -hmm. And it says, the man and the wife and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. But God called the man and said, where are you? Mm -hmm. So the God that comes isn't simply a God that comes um, with an intention to, as you mentioned, check up on Adam and Eve. It is a God that comes to ask this most existential of all questions, where are you located? And it's not just about their physical location, yeah. right? We, I think we kind of understand that the implication is not only where are you physically, but what has happened, where, what has happened to you spiritually? What has happened in the very sinews of your being? This is the Adventist God. It's a God that comes to not check up on us, but it is a God that comes to assess the state that we're in because mm -hmm. only through assessing that state can there be a rescue. Yeah. And it's not like God doesn't know, right? Right. But I, I love that God begins with a question mm -hmm. that there is curiosity there. There is a, um, a desire to elicit a response, mm -hmm. to reestablish that connection with people again. God could have come into the, into the garden, shown a, a spotlight on where they were right. hiding and said, there you are and this is what's wrong with you. But instead he, become, he comes and with gentleness, that I don't know if I would have that level of gentleness if I had children who disobeyed like mm. that. But he, he comes in with that gentleness and he tries to reestablish a connection mm. with them again. And I love that, that um, in this verse that uh, Moses uses the covenant name, mm -hmm. the relational name for God, Yahweh, right? Mm -hmm. um, Yahweh God or Lord God in this to kind of show it, it hints at the fact that this is this isn't a very relational mm -hmm. god who wants to establish a connection mm -hmm. with humanity again yeah well stated and i think what what is going on as you're as you're saying is 
um, it's it's very I love the analogy that you use between a parent and his or her children uh, because I think what causes the separation isn't the act of sin that is the state that sin produces mm -hmm. and the state that sin produces if you're if you're reading the text closely is fear mm. And so the, the question then always is, how do you assuage this experience of fear? Right. And um, it's almost like uh, God is, is dealing with two children as they wake up from a nightmare and they recognize in, in fear and trembling, mm -hmm. they come to mom and dad's bedroom and they knock on the door. The door opens. Mom and dad are in the bed and... Uh, Junior uh, says, I had a nightmare, Daddy. Um, and Mom and Dad look at this child, and the first thing that they do is they try to make sure, or the first thing that at least we do, I'm sure you, you do the same, is try to make sure that they, that Junior understands that this imagery, this reality in which this nightmare has propelled them into isn't real. Mm -hmm. And that only happens by asking the question and by offering the assurance, you're safe, that isn't real, we're here for you. And it seems like that's what God is doing mm -hmm. in Genesis 3. You're safe. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that you're safe because the answer that... Uh, that Adam gives to the query is we heard you wrestling, we were naked, we were afraid. God says, who told you you were naked? You're safe. Mm -hmm. There is no word of condemnation mm -hmm. for Adam as they're trying to assess uh, even Adam's condition. You're safe. I am here. Ergo, where are you? And so, and this is this is what's real, this connection that you and I have. And so you have uh, what scholars call the the proto gospel being uh, kind of that is going to be unveiled in the next few chapters. So it seems like God is trying to Yahweh, as you said, this personal God is trying to remind Adam and Eve that not only God comes, but that the reason for God's coming is to assuage fear. Mm, yeah, yeah, because that's always a challenge. I mean, just just stepping out of the passage for a moment and talking about our personal lives. It's always a balance um, in parenting, right? Mm -hmm. When a child has done something that you know that they've done something wrong and they know that they've mm -hmm. been done something wrong. I mean, it's different when they don't think they've done something wrong. That's a different approach. But when they already know that they've done something wrong and they are overcome with shame and guilt, how to respond, right? What is the first step? How do we, how do we, what do we want to communicate and how do we want to teach them in that moment? I, I was reading, um, we were reading um, a, a book called Peacemaker. I've referenced it many times mm -hmm. um, in the Sabbath school, but uh, this week. And the author of that book talked about how when his children would mess up, what he wanted to do was to remind them that the most important thing he wanted them to ground them in was to remind them of God's grace. Mm -hmm. So he said he would pull them onto their his lap and then he would tell them, you know, daddy forgives you. I know we both know that you did something wrong here, you know, you, and they would talk about it, but I want you to know I forgive you. And the reason why I forgive you, I can forgive you is because God has forgiven me. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've 
I've hurt people before, and God has offered me grace, and that's why I can forgive mm. you. And so he wanted to make it clear in their minds that in his children's minds, that God's grace is abundant and it's always available to them. And as I was reading that passage, I was thinking about times when I had not done that, mm -hmm. where the first thing that I led with was not grace, but with with justice, with condemnation, mm -hmm. with, with, um, with teaching them a lesson not to do right. that thing again, right? And yet, wow. When I read that passage, I thought, what message would I rather have my kids walk away with mm. is that if I bring, if I bring this mistake, this sin to my parent, to my parent, to my God, um, that I'm going to be met with condemnation or that I would be met with grace. Mm. I'm not saying that it's not appropriate to, to talk about the issue and to address the issue. Right. I think that's absolutely appropriate but i think we do our kids sometimes a disservice if we don't lead with grace yeah and that's what god as you're pointing out that's what god does here he does he does address their sin later on like in that passage he says have you eaten from the tree that i commanded you not right. to eat from so he does address the issue itself but he leads with grace right. and i think that's powerful because that's what that's what that's the only thing i think that can assuage the fear yeah. uh the fear i think ingrained in human beings is because everything every relationship or most every relationship that we have is transactional and to some degree we we kind of believe that our our spiritual life is transactional in other words god will love me as long as i x y and z and i think the the preoccupation with a lot of people uh, that and this is i think why both you and i hedge a bit and we say we're not saying that everything goes or that you don't talk about sin or that there are no consequences the reason why we hedge is because there's a large contingent of christianity that says if you just talk about grace mm. then there are going to be then you are really really being lax on standards and I don't know if it's that I'm getting older um, and my kids are getting older. Perhaps that's that's what's going on. But I think when we have that conversation, Joey, it is because we have deeply, deeply underestimated grace. Hmm. We have deeply, deeply underestimated the transformative power that grace possesses. Hmm. We have deeply, deeply under, underestimate, underestimated that, as you've said on many occasions here, grace is not equivalent to weakness. Hmm. Grace requires strength and courage and transformation. And sometimes pain and suffering are part of the grace process. Uh, sometimes there aren't. It depends, I think, on the circumstances and on the conditions. But what I don't want to do as we're trying to redefine the mission that God has for us as the Adventist church in the 21st century is I really have a dream for Adventism in the next millennium, if Jesus doesn't come before us, to continue uh, be not only leading with grace, but to recognize how powerful grace is, uh, rather than underestimating the power that grace has. Wow. Yeah. As you're talking, like just moments in my mind, uh, moments of my life popped mm -hmm. into my mind where I experienced grace mm -hmm. and how transformative that mm -hmm. was, right? More than someone coming down hard on me mm -hmm. and saying, oh, you should 
those are the, not the moments that were turning point moments right. for my life. Not at least not turning point moments towards a healthier life, right? The moments that I experienced a change towards something that's healthier were moments where I was overwhelmed mm -hmm. by somebody's grace to me, by God's grace to me, by somebody's forgiveness. And those were the moments that were most transformative. And yet, like you said, we are sometimes, we underestimate the power, the transform, transformative power of grace. And um, that we feel like if we don't, if we don't add the stick to the honey, people aren't going to change, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is where, and without you knowing, and we're having, I think, a very casual conversation, uh, but we're also building a systematic or a theology of Adventism, if you're paying, if you're paying close attention. So the first thing that we've said is that the mission of the Adventist church is to, is to recognize that whatever happens, uh, it starts with God. So God always, the Adventist God, the God that comes always initiates the process. Mm -hmm. The question then is, why does God do that? And we've said already that it is because it is in God's very being. It's, in, it's part of God's essence to know and to be known. What are some of then the pitfalls or the obstacles to know and to be known? And we've, we've landed on fear. Fear, I think, is a, is a huge obstacle both to know God and to know and to be known by God. And so we're saying the Adventist God always initiates. The Adventist God wants to be known. Fear is an obstacle in our knowing and being known by that God. And so grace is the perfect antidote to, to fear. So we're, we're moving, I think, closely. And hopefully by the time of our time together, we can articulate it even more clearly. What is the mission uh, that God has for us? Wow. I love how you systematically showed that, that, that even the act of grace is is um woven into who god is mm -hmm. which is that relational god mm -hmm. the the god who is known and uh, wants to be known and you know, know um each of us that that personal intimate god gives grace because that is the only thing that can repair the relationship mm -hmm. when fear gets in the yeah. way yeah that's that's, that's well said mm -hmm. and the question then becomes right Okay, so God, so the the purpose of the Adventist Church is to promote, or the mission of the Adventist Church is to promote this God. Uh, how do we then deal? Uh, because it's it's God's intention then is to know us and to be known by us. How do we deal with people whose knowledge of God? is different than our knowledge of God or than our understanding of, of who God is. And I think that's where the lesson does a really good deal, move, uh, does a really, really good job of moving us to consider the times in which God steps in uh, to prevent uh, this, this term that is in vogue, right, mission drift, when the people of God start swerving from this idea. Uh, it, it almost is like... It, it, is by de facto that God will step in to kind of realign them. So uh, you have, for example, uh, the, the lesson talking about Moses and about uh, people like Joseph and how when God's people start to mission drift from, from that which they have been called for, God reminds them that their uh, job is to respond in kind to what God is already doing. So we don't start by saying, what do we do? We start by asking the question, what is God already doing? Where is God already at work? 
And that that becomes challenging because often God is at work in the places that we don't expect. Hmm. Uh, we were talking about uh, the lesson talked a little bit about uh, Abraham and God was at work in some pretty strange places, right, mm. throughout the Abraham cycle, uh, where Pharaoh of Egypt, for example, acts in a, in a much more God-oriented way when he finds out about Sarah and, and Abraham's lie than Abraham does. And so the, the challenge is not only to be known and to know, but to also ask ourselves the question, where is God already at work? in order for us to come alongside um, and to buttress those efforts of what God is already doing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems like sometimes we make the assumption that God is only at work in the church mm. and only at work in Adventists mm. <laughs> or Christians, mm. right? That God is only at work there. But the reality we find from scripture as you, you, so eloquently described it is that God it's like these people pop out of nowhere mm -hmm. and you find out that they are God followers mm -hmm. right right Abraham goes and he gives a tithe to this king and we get no background on this right. king or who he is well, and yet, yeah yeah he just gives him the tithe yeah. and so your understanding is oh he must be he must be a priest of God or he must be a follower of God something right like these random people pop out in scripture and um, even like um, Balaam, mm -hmm. right? Balaam appears out of nowhere. And then he has this whole segment in, in the book of Numbers about him. And then he disappears, mm -hmm. right? So there is this idea that God is work at work in places that we do not expect. Mm -hmm. And that, that it's not so much us going into, I think the ter term that we used to use for... Um, um, territories where Christianity has not spread is like dark territories, mm -hmm. right? Dark countries that there is no light already happening there and that we need to go into there and shine that light, right? Um, that God is already sparking a light in those places. We just need to find out where he's working and partnering with mm -hmm. him. That would really change the way that we approach mission, right? Because if it's not us just bringing the light, but to explore and understand the light, there is a lot more curiosity, mm -hmm. a lot more trying to understand what's already happening there before imposing what we have in mind mm -hmm. on the situation. And I love, I love the the idea of curiosity because it links perfectly back to Genesis and this passage that we've been talking mm -hmm. about, right? Um, Questioning uh, denotes care, questioning buttresses curiosity. And so to ask profound questions about people's state isn't, uh, it, it's not for the agenda or with, I should say, with the agenda of converting them to your own idiosyncrasy, whatever that is, but rather it's to denote care and curiosity. I think if we approach then uh, our mission as simply co-partners with God and God's work of, sal of salvation and salvaging the world, I think then that needs to leave us open to the possibility that perhaps and just perhaps my the mission of the Adventist church is not to create more Adventists. Mm. And that is, I think, something that we might 
rub people the wrong way, to be quite frank, in, in some other parts of the world and even in our own country where we uh, denote the success of our mission output with how many people are coming into the church. And I think if you're approaching mission with the sense of curiosity that we are simply asking the question, what is God already doing? Then our job might not be to create more Adventists. It might be to partner with uh, God in wherever God is, wherever God is working. And if that leads people into our community of faith, great. And if it doesn't, then that's, that's, that's on God. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a hard statement to say because naturally, as members of an organization or institution, I mean, there's a reason why we're part of mm -hmm. it. We're excited Absolutely. about what's, what God is doing in this organization. And there's a desire to keep it going. Absolutely. Right? But you're saying that ultimately it is not an organization itself that is that encompasses the full work of God. Mm -hmm. It's not any one organization. God is bigger than that. God is bigger than the Seventh-day Adventist mm -hmm. Church. So that what it means to partner with God and to do the mission of God is to work with God wherever he's working, mm -hmm. whatever he's doing. And if that comes, that is in our circle of influence, in our, our, our sphere of living, then we need to partner with him in that. So that some of that work may be within the Adventist mm -hmm. Church and some of that work may be in our in our in our in our own workplaces or in our neighborhoods or wherever that is and it may not even be explicitly religious at times right but that god is doing good there and we want to partner with him in doing that yeah and joey i think that's so well stated because sometimes our mission is so small i mean if the if the whole mission of God, that God has for us is the Adventist Church, then that is really a paltry mission. Um, if if the mission is an organization and an institution, then that is really a short-sighted mission. Um, um, we love organizations and we love institutions because it is through organizations and through institutions that mission processes become functional. Uh, become functional. It is through mission. It is through organizations and through institutions that you can actually institute long-term yeah. uh, mission goals, right? So the but the service of the organization is towards the mission, and I think mm. the the roadblock sometimes is that we've thought that the mission is for the organization. Mm -hmm. And when Adventism as an institution, as an organization becomes the end goal, then I think that's when mission drift happens. Yeah. I'm very comfortable with saying the mission of the Adventist church is the Adventist God insofar as we understand the Adventist God to be simply the God who comes. And if God is coming, if God has come and continues to come through the work of the spirit, the question becomes, Comes again, and not to not to be redundant, but what is God doing already? How is God coming? Where is God coming? Where can we see God visibly acting? And then, how do we uh, leverage our influence, our resources, our passion, our talents to aid in in that which God is already doing? Wow! Yeah, because I mean, I, I love what you're saying about institutions because. 
you're absolutely right that that institutions, the reason why we create institutions is because they're doing such great mm -hmm. work. And the only way we can ensure that they last beyond our own mm -hmm. lives times is to institutionalize it. Right. Right. But the danger with institutions, as you pointed out, is that is that it can institutions can all become about survival and this, the propagating of the its own institution rather than the mission for which mm -hmm. it was originally created. Right. And that's why our Adventist pioneers struggled with the idea of Correct. even creating an organization because they wanted it to be a movement, mm -hmm. a movement that was always following God wherever God would lead it. And so it didn't want the frameworks of the institution, but they realized in this world that it's it's really impossible to have things last beyond a generation if you don't start to organize and institutionalize them. So they did it, but they did it reluctantly. And I think the our our chance of greatest um, our ch the our the chance that we have to keep on point with our mission and not drift from our mission is to to understand the value of the institution, but also resist the impulses of institutionalism, mm -hmm. which is to be all about the propagation of just the institution. Mm -hmm. I love the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's why I'm part of the, I'm a pastor of it. I'm not saying that there isn't amazing work that happens in and through the church. There is incredible work that happens in and through it. But I also recognize that God is bigger than just this church. Right. And I think that's what's important to realize, that uh, our mission, our call, uh, has been to work within within this, this system, uh, this family that we call Adventism. Uh, as such, we happily respond to that and we happily work within the framework of Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, we are not blind to the shortcomings that the institution has, um, but we continue to work within the institution because we believe that in spite of all the shortcomings that the institution has, uh, Adventism has a particular message. And I would venture to say that it's part of what we're talking about, that the, the unique message of Adventism is this flexibility and this dynamic nature to who God is and how God works in and through us. Uh, as we look at the world. I think that that's, that's one of the things that, that keeps me grounded within Adventism. So I, I was thinking this week that perhaps what we need to, to do is to have some pretty loosely defined bound, institutional boundaries while, while having some pre, pretty clearly demarcated identity boundaries. Mm. And I think that's helpful um, when we say, hey, look, my job as an Adventist, because my identity is grounded in this idea of the God who's dynamic, the God who shifts, and the God who moves as we continue to understand more about this God. It's a God who comes. It is a God who is constantly at work in the world. It is a God who, as you said, pops up sometimes in unexpected places. If that is part and parcel of my identity, then those boundaries for me are pretty, pretty clearly defined. The other stuff, um, church polity and uh, structure, as long as they're for, as they are, uh, as they are being used in order to continue driving 
these very defined identity markers that, that I think I, I ascribe to, then I'm, I'm okay with that. But I'm also okay with those shifting and changing mm. as, um, as we continue to try to, to move uh, these identity markers ahead. So, for example, if there, if there comes a time when uh, we return to this state like they had um, in the in the early church where clergy wasn't paid, you had to do something else and ministry was something you did um, as part of your calling. I hope that we have the courage to say we're ready to vote ourselves out of a job because of the desire that we have for these identity markers, for the, for those things that really do drive the mission uh, to continue moving forward. Yeah. And that's the hardest part, right? Um, organizations are perfectly designed to get the results they're already mm -hmm. getting. Right? And there's a reason why, you know, for all of its flaws and brokenness and that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the way that it is, mm -hmm. is because it's beneficial to certain people and it's beneficial and it works for, and it does a work that is at, mm -hmm. at you know, very valuable. So um, there, that is what keeps it sometimes from being able to shift and even improve in its ability to, to accomplish or to work and partner with God, whatever God is doing. Mm -hmm. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, for example, is one that um, is impressive in its way of being able to communicate an idea across large bodies of people and get, get so many people on the same page mm -hmm. at the same time, right? Um, we've worked, for example, in the North American Division um, with the Fuller Institute on this thing called Growing Young. And Fuller, Fuller, Fuller Youth Institute was so impressed with the Seventh-day Adventist Church because of how quickly it was able to get all these books and all this information and have all of these conferences. All of these things happen so quickly. They said they have never worked with a church organization that was able to disseminate this information so quickly and so widespread all at once. It was very incredible. They, they were they were impressed with our church. That's something that we're very, very good at. The fact that there is one Sabbath school lesson study that Adventists across the world study together in different languages and they're able to create this and disseminate it in all these various languages in all these various places and people are growing and benefit from that. that that's incredible, right? So that was, that's something that the Seventh-day Adventist church does well. But because of those systems, it also has difficulty being flexible. It's difficulty moving quickly or adapting quickly to changings, changes, and especially when it comes to God challenging the way that we view things or the way that we think, it moves very slowly. Mm. And so how can, I, I sometimes wonder as I study scripture because I see God moving and I see the people of God always being too slow to follow where God is going, yeah. right? You see that in the Old Testament, they, where they got so obsessed with idolatry and they were so in that frame of mind, it took, I don't know how many hundreds of years and generations for them to finally get on the same page with God. And when they finally got there, God, they found that God moved a little bit more too, that he was trying to progress them to, to not, not just saying, okay, we need to stay away from idols. But when Jesus came to say that God is here with us in human form and their whole 
concepts of who God was prevented them from being able to see God in their midst. And so I wonder if, if the things that we are good at as a Seventh-day Adventist church sometimes prevent us from being able to partner with God when he moves in ways that we're not ready for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think this is why this lesson is such a welcome addition to the litany of studies that we've done. Because I think when you ask about organizational leadership of any institution, and Adventism is a mammoth institution with over 20, 21.5 million people, I believe it is now. So when you ask an institution that size, uh, organizational leadership says we can define how how adaptive a um, an institution is by simply asking them, what is your mission? And if the institute, if the majority of people in that in said institution can answer the question, what is your mission, with uh, uh, with one sentence, and you find that though the language might be different, the sentiment behind the mission is shared, mm. then you have the capacity for adaptability. Mm. I think the primary problem is if you ask Adventism around the world, what is the primary mission of the Adventist church? I'm not sure that you're going to get the level of uniformity mm. uh, that those people studying organizational leadership and uh, the capacity for an institution uh, to be adaptable, uh, to be adaptive. I don't know if if we're at that point yet. Hopefully, conversations like this are leading us in the direction where we're actually asking, okay, well, what is the most important part? Is the most important part to respond to what God is already doing? Is, as Adventists, my primary uh, job to ensure that you are having a relationship with a God that is already common, that is already doing something in, in your life. Mm-hmm. And if that leads you to the doors of my church, great. And if that leads you somewhere else, then my mission has been fulfilled. Is that our job or is our job something else? And I think um, until we're able to do that, we are not going to be able to move uh, to the second part of organization of, of adaptive leadership, which uh, we can we can talk about in, in a little bit. But I think the first thing mm. is kind of codifying clearly uh, how capable we are of navigating change because we have a uniform mission. I, we've spent many, many years, as you know, in this local church attempting to do that very thing and it's difficult and it's taken a process and we're not perfect at it yet yeah. um, but i think we're at a better place than we were uh, five years ago uh, so i i really hope that uh, that whole process pervades uh, the church at large um, but I don't, I, I, I don't know, Joey, I can speak to what's happening here, but speaking to what's happening in the, in the massive institution is, is a bit more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you said that, that at the heart of our ability to be flexible is a need to clarify what we are really about. Mm. And if what we're really about is following God, wherever he leads us, then we will design an institution that's flexible Correct. enough to follow God Correct. wherever. If those, if the, if that's the result we actually want, then it's going to take us reorganizing in a way so that we can do that. Mm. And yet, um, what hold partially what's holding us back is we're saying, well, there's all these other th- good things that Great we can things. be about, yeah, right, and. Um, we are invested in those things and the church is already doing those things well. Mm-hmm. And we're not sure if we want to let go of these things to do this thing. Right. 
better. And I think that's that's the catch-22 that happens with any institution, right? With any institution, you see the work on the ground being done, and you're saying, these are great things that are happening. Mm -hmm. These things are blessing people, they're helping people, they're aiding people. And so we, um, we get very weary about dividing our attention to the point where we become ineffective in these things that we're already doing. Um, I would venture to say that if you clarify your mission, what you are actually doing is you're augmenting your efficacy. So these things that you're already doing are going to be done better because they're going to be done driven by this question, is this really necessary? Is this needed? Not is it good, there's many things that are good, but is this furthering a mission? And so I think the programs or, or the things that we are doing that survive that, that process are going to be done in, in a much more efficient way. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Are there times though that we're gonna have to let go of some of those things in order to do that other thing well? Because uh, I, I wonder about, yeah, because often I find that the, the, the thing that keeps us from being great at following God is not always just the bad things that we do, but the good things right. that we do that we don't want to let go Absolutely. Of. Absolutely. So um, we, they use this, this, and I'm sure you've read it and you've used it, and maybe you've even taught it. Um, we're teaching a class in transformational leadership, so it's, it's kind of fresh in my mind again for the 90th time, right? We've read, uh, we've read the story of Blockbuster. Blockbuster is, I think, a perfect case study for, for what you're talking about. Blockbuster was doing a lot of really good things to the point that by the end of the wars, Blockbuster was the only video rent. There was no more Hollywood video. There was no more mom and pop. Man, there were some. But if you wanted to rent a, a film, by and large, you went to Blockbuster. Mm -hmm. So Blockbuster, in their own process of uh, PR and uh, allocating of their funds and, and uh, market strategy, um, they were doing some, some really good things. Now, the question becomes, uh, what was the problem with Blockbuster? And I, I think we all know that Blockbuster, the problem with Blockbuster was a problem of mission. Blockbuster didn't really understand their purpose. They thought that their purpose was to provide uh, videotapes uh, for people to rent. And um, when, uh, when that was no longer needed in the market, then uh, Blockbuster became obviously uh, passe. We always like to, to look back, though, and we always like to say, hmm, well, I obviously wouldn't do that, mm. right? If I were sitting in a, in a shareholders meeting uh, 20 years ago and Netflix comes and there's a bid, and there was a bid, right, from, uh, from Netflix to be bought out by, by Blockbuster, I would have raised my hand and I would have said, no, gentlemen, ladies, we are a, we are not about video rentals. We are about entertainment. And so this is the next thing. Uh, we always like to say that the reality is I'm sure in the, in that, in those board meetings, there were people that knew way more about economics and way more about market share than I do and way smarter than us. And for some reason they didn't see it. Um, so. I think the question becomes, once you clarify what your vision is, you define who you are, how 
open are you to protect uh, disruptors and uh, those those people that are going to be the disruptors, those mm -hmm. catalysts for change. Any Every institution needs to have them. Yeah. And so I think institutions that are able to survive and to combat mission drift are really, really good at protecting um, those people who are who are uh, the people that come and that that they're catalysts uh, for for change and that they uh, we call them the disruptors right you can't, you protect those and so the question I think for for us in our own thing isn't how do we avoid being blockbuster the reality is I don't think we're smart enough to do that. Mm -hmm. I think we are smart enough to say, where in our institutional milieu do you have these disruptors that are saying, well, maybe it can be done a different way. And then how, how well it does Adventists do, does Adventism do at handling and protecting and offering those disruptors the, the spaces that they need to experiment? Yeah, wow. Yeah, and as you as we talk about Blockbuster and Netflix, I think I just read an article about how Netflix recently sent their last video, their last DVD mm -hmm. out, um, and and it reminded me that Netflix actually used to mm -hmm. mail DVDs, and people had mail order DVDs, mm -hmm. and their whole challenge to Blockbuster originally was not streaming, right. it was it was that there were no Netflix, there was no late fees with, with mm -hmm. Netflix, right? Like you could keep the videos as long as you wanted. And then when you were ready to return them, you would send them back and then they would tell send another a DVD from your queue um, that you had created. And, and it was just, and Blockbuster was making so much money off of late fees that they, they said, why would we embrace a model mm. that would actually destroy our bottom line? because late fees are the reason why we're doing so well. Right. It's not just the initial rental fees that people forgot to bring it by this time, right? By a certain time on the day, the next day, right? Um, and then people would pay extra so that they could keep it two days instead of one day and, and all of this. Um, yeah, and, and, and what Netflix understood was that it's not about the fees, it's about distributing mm -hmm. content. But then they had their own shift because they then now they shifted not just from distributing content, they are now content creators, mm -hmm. right? And so they've had to redefine again, clarify again, what is our core mission? Right. Now, I'm not saying that we, are, we need to be Netflix, but like you're saying, God is constantly moving and doing things in different areas. So that it seems like if our primary goal is to follow him, wherever he leads and work with him wherever he's moving, that it means that what we do and how we do it will continue to shift. Yeah. And I think that doesn't mean that we don't do that. I think that means then that we have to, as you said, let go of some really good things that we're doing. Yeah. Um, I, I've done this, uh, this, mental experiment in my mind a lot of times where I'm sitting in these in this board meeting and I'm looking and I'm saying, well, wait a second. I do have a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders, right? I have a responsibility to maximize profit. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what's going to happen in 10 or 15 years. Uh, you remember the time at the collapse of Blockbuster. You're living in, in, the, uh, in the middle of this dot-com uh, boom era, and you're living in the middle of a very volatile real estate market. So 
like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty. But when you're in the trenches, you did have a fiduciary responsibility to some shareholders to kind of toe the line. Um, Netflix, I think, came in and, and was a disruptor because of their their idea of mission. Uh, they felt that that their primary thing was distribution of entertainment. We are an entertainment company, and so that obviously equip them better for the shifts and the change, the changes that, uh, that happen. So now in the midst of a very, a very tumultuous era, much, much like the economic landscape, landscape of the early 2000, the church has to ask a question. Mm. And the way in which we answer this question is going to be, uh, very, very important to how our mission looks like in the next 30, 40, 50 years, if Jesus doesn't come back sooner. And that is, is our job, as you said, to follow God and to respond to what God is already doing? Because after after all, and I, I want to change the language a little bit, if you'll permit me. I've been mm -hmm. thinking about this all week and I'm have been playing with it in my mind. Should we shift or shouldn't we shift? I even would like to say that Adventism's mission is not to follow God, it's to encounter God. Mm. God is already here. That's well said. And so are we, is that our mission? Is our mission simply to encounter God in the spaces and places in which God is already at work? Or do we have a responsibility, uh, an institutional responsibility to a church that I, that I think is doing, as, you, as we've mentioned before, a lot of good things? How we answer that question is deeply, deeply going to form uh, the paradigm that we're going to have towards mission in the next couple years. And so um, I don't know, I don't have the answer, um, but I, I pray that those people that that uh, are higher up in in the in the chain uh, that they're that they're asking their, those questions. And I, as I said, I'm really, really encouraged, at least by by the conversation. Yeah. And it's one that I look forward to continuing with you throughout the rest of this quarter. Well, Joey, I think as we as we've done, we've we hope that we've encountered God. Um, if you if you want to pick up a video uh, at Blockbuster, there's still one open up in uh, Oregon. So there's really? one Blockbuster. Um, and if you, I, I flew, as you know, uh, back to Portland for some doctoral work um, uh, in the previous years. And I always try, I always would make a step. It's like stepping into a time capsule. It's amazing. And yes, they still have the overpriced snacks <laughs> and there's not enough. And they always run out of the, of the new releases. So it's really like stepping into a time capsule. Uh, wow. But um, we hope that you'll encounter God in, the, in these next 13 weeks with us. Will wow. you pray for us? Yes. Our good and gracious God, thank you for being a God who continues to come, come into our lives, come into our neighbors' lives, to come into our communities, to work in places that we, even, we haven't even stepped into yet. You are already there as our omnipotent, um, omnipresent God. You're already there and you're already working. So help us to be able to recognize the ways that you are working and have the courage to work alongside you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So may you encounter God wherever you are and in the midst of whatever you do. That is our mission for you this week until we meet next time. Mm -hmm.